Good morning again, and if you came in after the greeting time, uh, let me just say welcome to you again. We are the South Baton Rouge Presbyterian Church. Um, after a detour last week through 1 Kings chapter 8 for our dedication service, we are picking up again with a kind of a long-standing study of Paul's letter to the Romans, focusing on the 12th chapter this morning, verses 9 to 13. The verses are in the, the bulletin for you, but if you've got a Bible, I would encourage you to turn there and use that um, instead. And these verses, this uh, small section is part of a larger section at the end of Paul's letter that runs from chapter 12 through 16 and is the last main division of this book of the Bible. Uh, in this final division, there is an emphasis overall. There's, it's a mixture, but there's mostly what it is, is uh, an emphasis on the application of the deep gospel truths that Paul has been unfolding for the previous 11 chapters. So it's largely about application here. Now in our first look at chapter 12, we saw how Paul, uh, with God's mercy firmly and clearly in view, is calling his readers to, uh, to two things. Uh, to see how what we do with our bodies uh, and how we live our lives is an integral part of how we honor God. Uh, it's about how we live before watching the world in the sanctuary that is out there, outside the doors of this building. And secondly, Paul is calling us to be transformed by continuing to resist being conformed to this world and by actively pursuing the ongoing renewal of our minds through various means, but centrally by His Word and through the communion and fellowship and interaction with the body of Christ, with the saints. Now after that, in verses uh, 3 to 8, Paul builds on those opening remarks with a section that talks about the different gifts that Christians have. And in his uh, very helpful sermon on these verses, Josh got us to think about two main things there. Firstly, how we should think about our gifts, and then how we should actually use or employ our gifts in the body of Christ. And then after Paul has kind of finished laying out his preliminary theological groundwork in verses 1 to 2 and 3 to 8, he then launches into an extended um, time of pretty direct instruction and application. That's going to take us from chapter 12, verse 9, where we start this morning, all the way to the 13th verse of chapter 15. And uh, if you kind of step back and take in the big picture of this whole section, you see that one of the main things that Paul is doing throughout this is demonstrating how the gospel, that is how uh, what Jesus has done on the cross how uh, that really revolutionizes this whole matter of human relationships, as one writer puts it. And Paul shows us this in several ways through that, that whole section. He's going to firstly talk about uh, the general implications of what he's been saying for Christians living and relating to one another in community. And then he's secondly going to talk about the implications of what he's been saying all along for this whole matter of how we relate to our enemies. That'll be an interesting thing to look at. Thirdly, he works out some of the implications of all this for how we relate to civil authorities, to governments, things like that. And fourthly, he works out some of the implications of what he's been saying in a fairly extended section, and this is important for us as a church, as any church really, but he works out the implications of what he's saying for this specific situation of relating to Christians with whom you disagree about disputable matters. Got a fairly lengthy section 
just on that. So again, one of the big overarching messages in this closing section of Romans is that the gospel revolutionizes all relationships. It revolutionizes relationships with believers, uh, with our enemies, with civil authorities, and with Christians with whom uh, we disagree sometimes over disputable matters. Now, of course, we're not going to try to look at all that this morning in one hit. We're going to be dividing it up. And that means this morning we're going to focus our attention on just that first part, and that is this whole matter of how believers relate to one another in Christian community as we take a closer look at Romans 12, 9 to 13. Before we dive into that, let's pray together. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we would pause on the front end to ask for your blessing and your guidance as we undertake together the study of this portion of your word to us and for us. And as it is about the particular matter of how we relate to one another as believers, and as our gathering this morning is all about that, please make us then especially attentive this morning and use this text and this time to work within us real understanding and conviction and change by the operation of your Holy Spirit within us. Cause us to be increasingly a community that points others to you and that speaks well of you because of who we are and how we are. We pray this for your sake and our benefit. In Christ's name, amen. Let's listen to the passage. Um, this is God's word. It's completely, utterly reliable. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. The first thing I want you to notice are some things that Paul says here in in the first two verses, verses 10 and 11. He says this, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. I think all of that goes together. Um, Interestingly, Paul's pattern here is very similar to the one that he shows in 1 Corinthians. Maybe you've read 1 Corinthians, you might be familiar with this. But in the heart of that letter, there's this discussion about gifts that kind of goes from chapter 12 through chapter 14. And right in the center of that discussion about gifts, Paul talks about the crucial importance of love. And uh, it's so important, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that without love, he says, we are nothing. He says, without love, all of our giftedness, notwithstanding, it means nothing without love. And so here in Romans, Paul has just talked about giftedness and how we're to think about it and how we're to use our gifts and right on the heels of that, he imitates the pattern in Corinthians and he talks to us about love because they go there. And what he says is this, let love be genuine. Let love be sincere. Now the word he uses is and Hippocrates. You might recognize a word in there which 
uh, hypocrisy, we get our word from that. And so what he's saying is, let love be without hypocrisy. That's the literal rendering of that phrase. Without hypocrisy. And it helps to know, as commentators point out, that back in the day, um, the Hippocrates was an actor, a play actor. So when Paul says that love is genuine or sincere without hypocrisy, what he means is it's real. He means it's not a show, it's not acting, it's not theater, it's not a performance. It's real. So, for example, when Judas came and he found Jesus and he betrayed him with a kiss, this outward expression of love was acting. It wasn't love. Uh, It wasn't genuine. It was pretense. On the surface, it might have looked like love, but underneath, it was nothing of the sort. Christians aren't meant to be that way. We're not meant to function that way. It's meant to be more of what you see is what you get kind of situation. And the reason our love ought to be genuine is because it is modeled on God's love for us, which is sincere and deep and, of course, without hypocrisy. Well, to that opening statement, that's just kind of a general, very general statement, but to that, Paul adds a couple things, three phrases, actually, that help clarify just what this genuine love looks like. The first phrase is, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Now, what does that mean? What does that have to do with genuinely loving a person? Aborting what is evil and holding fast to what is good means pretty much what it sounds like it means. Uh, It means we hate the things that God hates. It means we love the things that God loves. It means we don't change the label on something so that what is evil is seen as good and vice versa. It means we don't make our peace with evil, but we're continually and increasingly unsettled by it. Uh, And conversely, it means that we are more and more captivated by and see the beauty of and, and are desirous of promoting those things that are good, things that are lovely and just and right. That's one of the things that God's Spirit does for us and does within us. He causes us to abhor what's evil and want to hold fast to that which is good, including, here's where the intersection is, including and especially when we see it in one another. So if we genuinely love a person, and we see something in them or in their life that's not good or right, then we won't be able to just look the other way or pretend it's not real, not if we genuinely love them. We're going to speak up. We're going to say something about it. That's what genuine love does. That's what love that isn't just for show does. And of course, alongside that, we'll be equally vocal when we see those things that are good and right and lovely within one another. If we genuinely love one another, we'll be as liberal with our encouragements as we are with our rebuke. In fact, I think more liberal with our encouragements than we are with our rebuke. And this is important. It's so important for how we relate to one another. Because the culture of our day, right, the culture of our day is not conducive to loving people in this particular sort of way. You know, the mantra that is repeated everywhere, I hear it all the time, is don't judge. Don't judge. And um, I, I get what people often mean by that, but that mantra 
is used and abused everywhere, and it has the effect of silencing us when we really ought to be speaking up. Uh, what Paul tells us to abhor what is evil, our society would say, tolerate what is evil. Or better yet, redefine what is evil. So that the line between evil and good is blurred and it's increasingly difficult to discern which is which. Uh, but that's not the way. Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 17, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, Forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And Paul knows this, right? Paul knows that the church is entirely composed of forgiven sinners, right? And, and we will continue until Jesus comes back or we go meet him, we will continue to wrestle with sin. And that will impact others in this community. And Paul's full expectation is that God will use us in each other's lives to address these realities in our heart. It's a given. We're going to sin, right? And so if our love for one another is going to be real in that kind of context, if it's going to be genuine and not just play acting, then we're going to hate sin everywhere we see it, especially when we see it in ourselves and in each other. And we're going to love each other enough to gently but clearly raise and address these things. Lots more could be said. Let's move on. A second phrase that gets used here is uh, love one another with brotherly affection. And, uh, you know, the thing that I want you to notice here is not real complicated, but the language is familial language, like brotherly affection, real familial language. So when Paul talks about brothers and sisters, he uses that phrase a lot in the church. He means it. He's not just using polite language. There's a real connection with real relationships and responsibilities and real privileges and real obligations to one another. We really are part of one body. We really are members of one another, to use Paul's language. And so the love that we have and express and act upon in this community is to be that kind of love, a kind of deep, uh, gritty, familial, blood is thicker than water sort of love. Right? And think about our families, our blood, blood families, right? Flesh and blood families. Think about the lengths to which we often go for our families, right? The things that we do all the time for our flesh and blood families. The sacrifices we're willing to make. The hardship and the trouble and the heartache we're willing to endure within our families and keep enduring. Think about what we do and how we are in that context. And Paul is saying that that is how we're supposed to be with this family. The same sort of links that you go to with your flesh and blood family are the ones we ought to be willing to go to for one another. It's that real. It's that genuine. So when Paul says love one another with brotherly affection, that's what he's talking about. He means that. And then he adds a third phrase, outdo one another in showing honor which I take it as a further expansion on his command to, to let love be genuine. So what does it mean to do this, to outdo one another in showing honor? Well, several writers have noted Paul's words in Philippians 2, 3 are kind of a functional equivalent to that same thing. Remember what Paul writes there? He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Outdoing one another in showing honor means... 
that if we excel in anything, it should not be in self-promotion, but in the promotion of others, the encouragement of others, showing gratitude toward others, highlighting the usefulness and drawing attention to the value that our brothers and sisters add to the body of Christ. Right? And it's not enough just to think these things, to think well of each other, although that's good. Paul doesn't say outdo one another in having a high regard for one another. He says outdo one another in showing honor to one another. So again, if we have a reputation for anything, it ought to be a reputation for building up and not tearing down. I remember standing next to a well-known Australian evangelist on one occasion, many years ago now. Uh, not a TV evangelist, mind you, but the good kind. And it was while we were both attending a conference in Sydney. And it was during uh, one of the break times, and uh, we were both kind of leaning back against this wall of this building and kind of talking and watching people file past on their break. And I was, admittedly, a little starstruck uh, with this um, man had been used by God in great ways in that country. And I was starstruck, firstly, because I'm an idiot, and secondly, because this man was kind of a legend in Australian circles. I mean, he's sort of a reformed version of Billy Graham over there. And it was an honor to meet him. It was an honor to talk to him and to learn from him. So anyway, this is going through my head, and I think John recognized that. He didn't comment on it. And at one point, John sort of tapped me on the arm. He pointed off at the distance that this young man is kind of walking our way, and he knew this young man. And he leaned over to me and whispered, and he said, you see that young man? I said, yes. He said, he is one of the great ones. And I, and I, uh, and I said, really? I had no idea. He's one of the great ones. And, uh, and I was racking my brain thinking, who is this guy? I should recognize him. He's one of the great ones. I've never seen him before. And I couldn't figure it out. So I said, I said you know, I, I'm sorry, John. I, just, I don't know. I don't know him. I don't know who you're talking about. Why is he one of the great ones? And John looks at me and he says, he's one of the great ones because his father is the great king. And he is one of his heirs to the riches of heaven. And I just smiled because John knew that I needed to hear that. He deflected my attention away from him. He picked out a brother of the Lord and he built him up in my eyes. As soon as he said he's one of the great ones, I thought my opinion of this man went through the roof and I didn't know him. It's so easy to tear people down, isn't it? It just rolls off the lips. So easy. But that's not how we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be the opposite. To outdo one another in showing honor. In valuing and building up one another. Have you ever known anyone that was like that with you? Someone who was just given to that sort of thing? I mean, to my shame, there have been more, more than one time in my life when I have made a negative or slightly negative comment about someone only to be pulled aside by the person I, in whose presence I had made the comment, who then proceeded to tell me some things that I didn't know about this person that I was tearing down, and in a moment, transform my whole view of that person from frustration to admiration and from disdain to respect. Ever have somebody do that to you? 
or for you. And have somebody bless you in that way. If you have, then you have been in the presence of someone who understood what Paul meant when he told the Romans to outdo one another in showing honor. And here's the thing. That practice, that attitude is not the exclusive domain of a gifted few in the congregation, but it is rather what Paul calls every believer to. To actively look for ways to build up other believers in the eyes of your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And you can see how these things that Paul is saying here, they work together, can't you? I mean, he calls the Roman believers to genuinely love each other in a way that is real and not a performance. And he also calls them in parallel with that and in conjunction with that to abhor what is evil, hold on to what is good, which means if the evil that you abhor is something you see in a fellow believer, then loving him or her in a genuine way compels you to gently but firmly talk to your brother or sister about it. Not talk to others about it, but to your brother or sister directly. And if you do talk to one believer about another believer, it ought to be always for the purpose of building them up in that other believer's eyes. Not tearing them down. It ought to come from a desire to honor them, to promote them, to lift them up in the eyes of others. Why? Because you're family. We are family. And you've been called to love each other with a brotherly, familial affection. So the first thing Paul says to Christians in terms of how they relate to another is, let love be genuine. The second thing I want you to notice, I went way long on that one, so these are shorter. There's hope. The second thing I want you to notice much more briefly is what Paul says in verses 11 and 12. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Again, I think these hold together. At the outset, let me say that the majority of commentators I've seen believe that the word spirit here in your translation, in your bulletin, um, it's, it's a small s there, I believe. Uh, and the commentators, though, believe that the majority, that this is not the human spirit, but instead the Holy Spirit. And so why the ESV translation does it this way is beyond me. Uh, I think Cranfield's rendering, be aglow with the Holy Spirit, I think that's a good one and probably a better one of this phrase. At any rate, what Paul seems to be doing here is encouraging his readers to express their spirituality and to do it enthusiastically, absolutely, he's saying, be enthusiastic, but not lazily, not slothfully, not self-centeredly, not with mere or raw emotion, but rather in service and devotion to the Lord. All right, so Paul had seen plenty of so-called uh, this so-called spirituality that was a monument of self-interest and immaturity. He's seen tons of that. But he's calling his Roman uh, brothers and sisters to something better. He is urging them to express their spirituality in enthusiastic, fervent service to the Lord. And along with that, verse 12, Paul calls them to express their spirituality, not only in service, but also with depth and maturity. He does so by means of three little phrases that pack a pretty powerful punch. He says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Three things that ought to characterize God's people in every place, in every age. And again, I think they, they all work together. Starting with that middle one. Uh, tribulation, hardship, difficulty, that is a reality in this world. That is a reality because the world's broken. 
is broken. And it's a reality in our lives because we're broken. And it's a reality especially for those who identify with the Lord Jesus because the world hated him and will hate his followers too. We have absolute assurance of that in the scriptures. That's a reality. And so when Paul calls his readers to patience in the midst of all that, right? He calls them that, to be patient in the midst of that kind of tribulation and hardship. Not with grumbling, not whining, or complaining, not muttering under our breaths every step of the way, but with patience because that is where we are, right here in the midst of all this. But that's not all we have, right? Right here, right now is not all we have. Because right here in front of us, just in front of us, maybe still out of our reach a little, but it's there and it's real, is this hope. And it's based on God's promises and it's based on the things that He has assured us are ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. Promises of forgiveness and restoration and new hearts and a repaired world and eternal life and fellowship with Him. All those and all those that are His. Promises of healing, ultimate healing, lasting healing of pain and suffering when we are with Him. All of that being abolished and gone forever in a place where there are no tears. All that is wrong being made right again. Those are real things. They're not right here, but they're right here in front of us. And Paul calls us to remember that. This is where we are and it often hurts and it calls for patience and endurance, but this is not all we have because in front of us is this hope that is real and secure and it is something we can and we should rejoice in even as we're being patient here and we look forward and rejoice in hope this is nothing less he's not asking us to do anything less or anything more than what Jesus did right so Hebrews 12 what does it say therefore since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who For the joy that was set before him endured the cross. The joy is in front of him. The cross is the present. He endured it with his eye on the joy before him. Despising the shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So, you know, where we are often requires patience. I don't need to tell you that. But even so, even in the midst of this, we can look ahead and look forward in hope. And what is it that helps us to bridge that gap between present and the future? Hope? It's constant prayer. It's the persistent prayer. It's, Father, can I tell you about my day? Can I tell you what kind of day I've had? It's, Father, can you remind me of the day that I am waiting for? that's not here and one more thing can you tell me is there anything I can do today to help us get there any quicker what's Paul saying here he's saying let your spirituality your fullness and fervency of spirit be evidenced by your service to the Lord which inevitably means service to the Lord's people And let your spirituality be evidenced by that. 
not by mere enthusiasm. And let it be evidenced by maturity, patience amidst tribulation, not grumbling and complaining. By hopeful rejoicing, not cynical forecasting. By constant prayer and not incessant muttering and self-pity. All of which is about, he's talking about what we're modeling even as we are serving the Lord. What are we modeling? What are we showing? What is the sermon that's coming from that? Finally, very inadequately, let me draw your attention to verse 13 where Paul says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So as a further illustration of the way that the gospel ought to revolutionize our relationships with believers, Paul calls his readers to a generosity of spirit. And the generosity moves in two directions. Two directions. Firstly, it's a generosity toward your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And whenever Paul uses the language that he uses here, no surprises, he is always talking about one's possessions, uh, your finances, your resources, your property, your houses, your cars, whatever. He's calling his readers to not hold tightly to these things, but to hold them loosely and to be willing to make sacrifices for the sake of those who are in need amongst us. That's what he's calling us to. And that's a tough one for us because that's about our hearts and it's about our idolatry of things and what we believe we have to have versus what we actually have to have. At the same time, even as he calls them to that, Paul also urges them to seek to show hospitality. And the word for seek to show is the word for pursuit, as in chasing someone down, chasing something down. It's not a casual word. So the idea here is not that we should sort of be open to hospitality if and when it might occasionally stumble across our path, this opportunity. That's not what he's saying. The picture is of someone who is on the lookout, who's sort of scanning the horizon looking for an opportunity to show hospitality. And that's the other thing here. Paul, first, his first call is an inward call, being generous toward brothers and sisters. His second call is an outward-looking call. Hospitality has in view specifically generosity towards strangers, toward people who are outside our church community, but who we hope maybe one day will come in. I remember years ago attending a small groups training seminar in Atlanta, and one of the things they talked about a lot was the empty chair. And uh, some of you know about this sort of thing. And it was this practice of making sure that uh, whenever your group got together, your small group, if there were eight people in your group, you would put out nine chairs. And the, the ninth chair was the empty chair. And it was a reminder, that uh, this physical reminder that you ought to be praying for and pursuing the people who aren't in the group. And looking forward to the day when that chair was filled and another empty chair gets added. Now you might think that's a little corny. Um, That's a little calculated or something. Um, But I do think the idea is vastly important. Because it's really at the heart of what Paul is saying here. Because one of the things that ought to characterize us, even as we're living together in Christian community, even as we're busy relating to one another... One of the things that ought to always characterize us is that we are always aware that we're not all here yet. We're not all here yet. That the job isn't done. That there are people out there who ought to be in here. 
So in the midst of all our concern and our love for one another and generosity toward one another, we can never lose sight of the fact, and it's not meant to be insular, we can't lose sight of the fact that we're not all here yet. There ought to be this abiding awareness and compassion for those who aren't present. There ought to be this understanding that the church exists absolutely for the sake of its members, but this church also exists for the sake of its non-members. And that awareness and reality ought to affect the way we do everything. The way we worship, the way we do our small group, the way we fellowship together, the plans we make, the way we speak, the friendships we build, all of that. Our time is gone, so let me sum it up. Paul's word to the Christians living in the community is this. Let your love be genuine, not showy or theatrical. Let it be a love that applauds what is good and addresses what isn't. Love that promotes others in the sight of others. Let your spirituality be evidenced not by mere self-centered, slothful enthusiasm, but by fervent service to the Lord, which means service to the Lord's people. And let it be evidenced by a maturity perspective that produces patience in present troubles, joy in future hope, and honest, continual communication with the Father as we wait for the future to finish invading the present. Thirdly, let your life be characterized by generosity, by a willingness to sacrifice one's possessions for the sake of your brothers and sisters, and by a willingness to sacrifice one's time for the sake of the stranger, actively pursuing them for the sake of the gospel in all the ways that might be done. And why do we do this? Do we do it to obtain mercy, to get God's favor? No, we do it because we have his favor. We have obtained mercy. We do it, as Paul says in verse 1, by the mercies of God. We do it because of his kindness to take our sin and forgive us through his son's life and death and resurrection. So we're driven to this by mercy. And we live these things out under that same mercy. In the atmosphere of mercy, because the truth is, right, the truth is we have failed and will continue to do so in many ways as we pursue these things. Right? We can all look back and see times when our love has been anything but genuine has been false and showy. Times when we have not loved people enough to say hard things to them. Times when we have not loved them enough to look for ways to build them up and encourage them. We can think of times when we have not outdone one another in honor, but we've outdone one another in cynicism or criticism or slander. We can think of times when we sought to be honored and revered and placed ourselves first, times when our zeal was flagging, lacking, where we were more interested in being served than we were interested in serving others. We haven't been marked by patience, by frustrate, but by frustration and, and impatience, and we haven't been hopeful but rejoicing, but we've just been woeful in our doubts. Right? But thanks to God, thanks be to God, whose grace is greater than our sin. And who can and does forgive us when we turn to him sincerely, confess these things, and he was promised to make us new. And even now, even at this very moment, moving us along the path to the day when his work within us is finished. That is a sure thing. And we should be grateful for that. Let's pray.
Uh, Father, there's probably a million things in the New Testament about how we ought to live together in Christian community. This is just three, and it's, it's killing us. And um, so, Father, we ask that we would not be crushed by the awareness of how far short we often fall because of your great love for us, and we know it. And then use that, Father, your kindness and your mercy to draw us into a greater pursuit to live in the ways that are pictured even in these verses. And, uh, Father, by that means, uh, demonstrate the the goodness of this gospel. And, uh, Father, by that means, um, live in a way and as a community of believers that that you can use to draw others to yourself, that we really will be a city on a hill and, uh, and you will be attractive because to others because of what they see you doing in and through us, including when we fail. So we pray these things uh, with great confidence in you, none in ourselves, um, which is a great relief. We thank you, Father in advance for the good things that you are doing and have yet to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We now have a time where you can support the work of this church through your tithes and offerings um, and the number of things that this church supports uh, all around the world, really. And if you're visiting here, we don't expect you to give. We're not asking you to give. Uh, This is for those that, uh, we're just glad you're here. This is for those who understand what we're doing, really want to get behind it and be part of that. So uh, give freely and generously to these things.